1: Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water and Power. Every individual's actions matter in preserving resources. Join the Ripple Effect to build a more resilient water future. Learn more about water programs, workshops, and ways to save at pwpweb.com slash the Ripple Effect.
0: Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. Busy, busy program for you. Coming up next hour, we'll talk with the very popular writer Mark Kurlansky. He's written best-selling books on cod, salt, milk, his new book, The Core of an Onion, Peeling the Rarest Common Food, We'll talk with him. That's coming up next hour and later this hour. LAPD Chief Michael Moore makes his regular visit. We have a lot to talk with the chief about, including the investigation into what a fire detective say was an intentionally set fire under the 10 freeway, which is leading to its closure for the next three to five weeks. But we begin with voting that's going on right now. For the contract negotiated between SAG-AFTRA and the AMPTP, which represents studios and streamers. Joining us is entertainment and technology law attorney, Jonathan Handel. He's a Troy Gould the firm in Los Angeles and also a journalist for Puck. Jonathan, thanks so much for coming on and, and talking with us about the AI provisions of the tentative agreement, because that seems to be the issue that for some sag aftra members is raising questions
2: that's right larry thank you for having me and uh, a slight correction I, I have left troy gould and i'm with an entertainment boutique law firm called feig finkel a wonderful firm in beverly hills thank you for uh, the
0: update we we appreciate that uh jonathan let's uh, talk about um first of all what sorts of guardrails for AI are in the tentative deal, and then we can go on to why uh, even a couple members uh, of the board voted no on the tentative deal because of those AI guardrails.
2: Well, or in spite of the AI guardrails, I, I guess I'd say um, the the headline is that the union did get uh, guardrails in uh, on relating to various uses of AI in the form of uh, consent and compensation and residuals and or maybe i'll say and or residuals it varies uh depending upon the exact situation as we'll get into uh but they did not get an outright prohibition uh against the use of uh uh this kind of technology which which is what's led to uh concerns on the part of some uh people that the industry may ultimately evolve into a a purely or mostly synthetic one uh that That goal of prohibition that some people, uh, I think, hold dear, uh, was I think was not realistic for three reasons. One, there really is very little history or ability to stop the advance of technology, uh, particularly technology that has such a potentially cost-saving effect, unfortunately. I have generated a kid's book uh, that I'm going to self-publish in paperback on Amazon uh, called Who Do You Want to Be?, with what would be the equivalent of about twenty thousand dollars worth of illustrations that instead cost me 66 cents in total uh instead of 165 bucks an illustration a half a cent it simply wouldn't have been feasible to do it otherwise now that's not where the moving picture technology is today but uh the technology as we know continues to advance uh secondly uh the idea that the companies ever would have agreed to prohibit this technology when they, when the cost savings are so dramatic and potentially, and also when they fear the rise of completely synthetic studios that would not be union signatories and not agree even to guardrails, uh, was a you know was a great barrier. And thirdly, uh, the union was losing support within the membership, within the industry, and among the general public at large for the strike and the idea that it could have maintained another two months of strike through the holidays as people uh, you know were unable to buy Thanksgiving dinner or pay no you know December rent uh, really is you know the best is the enemy of the good so the the overall situation here is that you've got uh, multiple definitions of different kinds of AI uses and it's probably, Easiest to first sort of parse those out before we get into, uh, you know, the details of consent. So can you give us a
0: line on each of those, Jonathan? So we've got employment-based digital replicas. What's that?
2: Those are digital replicas of someone's likeness or their voice uh, and or their voice. Um, So it covers voice performers as well uh, that are created in connection with also employing the human being, the human performer.
0: So is this a case where an actor is hired for a particular role, and um, the the production company says we want to capture your likeness because we need to use in this film use an AI version of you in addition? And if the actor says no, I don't want it. I don't want to do that. Then can the can the production entity just go on and say okay? Well, we're not going to cast you. We'll go on to someone else.
2: Yes. Uh, it uh, it can, it can indeed. Um, the union had pushed for consent at time of use, not time of employment, but in the ultimate agreement, uh, consent at time of use can be sought by the producer and so they can then uh, at a time of employment, can be sought by the producer, and, and they can then say, well, we'll employ somebody else. That is that is correct.
0: The second uh, category, independently created digital replicas. So what would qualify as independently created?
2: That embody, in, envisions a scenario where the performer, where an actor, um, probably a relative, a famous actor or a character actor, uh create uh creates their own digital replica without being employed by a studio and then the studio later comes to them you know a a year later or whatever and says hey we like you we'd like to use your digital replica or the performer creates the digital replica and licenses it to an aggregator like some kind of a new agency a uh a a talent agency for for digital replicas and the uh again the studio comes to that agency says hey what have you got in the way of you know, hard bitten cops, uh, and they choose me. All right. So that's the scenario there. Okay. And that, and by the way, that's no—that's notable that the union got any jurisdiction over that because there's no employment relationship with the individual. And the touchstone of labor union rights in Anglo-American law is an employment relationship. So the studios could have said to the union, "We're not going to bargain over that. We're not going to talk about that. That's beyond your 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 you're out of your lane." but they didn't and now now that it's in the collective bargaining agreement assuming it gets ratified which it which it will uh, it only takes 50% and notwithstanding the opposition with all due respect it will get ratified uh it's now a mandatory subject of bargaining in the future for further, you know, guardrails and provisions.
0: Jonathan, then the third category, digital alterations of actors. That, that's what I was uh, asking about with the, with the first category, where where they want to take someone who's cast in a film, take that person's image, alter it, move it uh, other places in the production. So this too is covered?
2: This too is covered, and this is slightly different. This is where they're not creating the digital replica to, to uh, not creating a digital replica to use it separately in the production or in future productions, as we'll, as we'll discuss, um, which requires consent and identification of the production. But they, they're they shooting me, in human me, in the front of a car in dialogue with, with somebody, and then they decide, well, it would look better if I, he was in the backseat of the car. So they move my physical performance. They alter it. Uh, this is an extension, of course, of what goes on Already today, using editing tricks and using CGI, uh, they, there's an old saying that a movie is written three times: first by the writer, then by the director, then by the editor. An editor can make a good performance great, can make a great performance bad. Uh, notwithstanding, you know, completely independent of AI technology, and so the companies, of course, weren't going to agree to more restrictions on AI than you know then they already are able to make use using cgi and editing
0: so in that digital rep uh that di- uh, digital alterations of actors category is there is there a set price that someone has paid for doing that or is that negotiable with the actor no. in, in lieu of in exchange for consent what happens
2: no neither i mean cuz they're they're shooting they're taking uh a perf- the performance that they paid me for i, I worked Three days, and they shot a scene of me in an automobile in conversation, and maybe maybe shooting a firearm out the car or something. If I'm a gangster, whatever it is, they've already they paid me for that, and then they decide it's going to look better if we put this gangster in the back seat and put uh, put the gun mall in the front seat, say, or whatever it might be. So they, they they paid me for the work that I did. This, so, is, this okay. is not a replication scenario. This is a, just an alteration so, scenario. So
0: they're free to do that. And finally, there's synthetic performers. Um, so this you could take an aspect of, let's say, a well-known performer's face, put it into a, a, a totally synthetic character. What sort of protections are there against that?
2: Well, before we get to synthetic performers, there actually was another category that I, I, I would be golden if I if I ignored, which is background actor digital replicas. And that's the same as employment-based digital replicas, except that the, the quote-unquote employment-based ones are for principal performers, non-background, non-extras, in other words. And the use of replicating of extras of background actors is also regulated in the agreement and their consent and uh, compensation provisions. But moving on to the completely synthetic ones, the so-called synthetic performers in your question, there are two categories there. One is completely synthetic and nothing in them resembles a particular human. Um, And here the union got, got a notice requirement. They have to be notified by the studio whenever the studio uses such a creation and they have to have the opportunity to bargain for appropriate compensation, quote, if any, Uh, because it was probably trained on existing human performances. Here again, there's no employment relationship, so it's rather extraordinary that the union was able to get even even those protections. If they use, now now to get to your example, the the other subset of synthetic performers, if they use uh, a a recognizable human person's eyes, nose, ears, or mouth, so they, they say to the AI, generate an avatar for me that has Frank Sinatra's eyes, Marilyn Monroe's lips, uh, Brad Pitt's eyes, um, um, now not Brad Pitt's jawline, there only really are the four protected facial characteristics, Um, at least in this iteration of the contract, remember things can, can evolve every three years as these contracts are renegotiated. In that circumstance, they need consent and consent of course implies compensation from the human person or their estate or if the estate is not findable from the union itself.
0: In the case of a completely synthetic character, you yeah. mentioned that the union has to be notified. In that case, there may be compensation. Where would that money go that's paid to the union?
2: Uh, there's no specification of that, and I think that that th- this is an evolving. Uh, area this this raises the question that's also been raised in lawsuits that aren't aren't faring too well so far by authors and illustrators against AI programs generative AI programs that generate those kinds of uh, of content uh, which is hey you trained on in the case of those you know millions of pieces of text or millions of existing illustrations and photographs. Uh, there ought to be some compensation what well, we 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 don't the copyright law doesn't clearly deal with that and we don't have any mechanism for micro compensation uh, you know if, if my a photograph I took is one of a million that's used in training do I get a penny um, you know it's sort of unfeasible but where would they, where would it go in this instance would probably have to be discussed um, it might be go to the general union kitty to offset dues money it might go to a some kind of a distribution fund akin to the new fund that they got that they the sag After got for uh streaming payments it, it could go to that fund itself in fact uh or some other appropriate it could go to a training fund to train actors on technology uh and you know otherwise offset you know potential loss of employment so that's that's you know, it's a very early issue. The idea of a completely synthetic actor taking the place of an existing actor, we we the technology not is not good enough today. Will it mm-hmm. be good enough in two years, three years, maybe.
0: And then, of course, it takes a job from a human actor. We're talking with Jonathan Handel, entertainment and technology law attorney at Veig Finkel. He's also a journalist whose writing's on puck. He's talking with us about the various aspects of artificial intelligence, how it's handled in the tentative deal between SAG-AFTRA and the AMPTP. There have been some members who have said, Jonathan, that this was not a good enough deal; that the union should have held out longer. What do you expect? I mean, because you've you've served as special counsel in the past to SAG-AFTRA and 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 worked for the WGA. What do you think was on the negotiating committee's mind?
2: Well, and and of course, to be to be quite explicit, I um, I'm speaking on my own behalf, not on not on their either their behalfs or or for that matter. Uh, producers and members who I represent as a as a private attorney, uh, but I think what was on their mind was, you know, a negotiation is not a shopping spree. You don't get everything you want, or even everything you arguably, you know, believe or arguably deserve. And in this instance, as I alluded to earlier, uh, leverage was really decaying uh, quickly at this point. Um, you saw the A-listers. Come out with a rather, you know, perhaps well-intentioned, but rather crazy, you know, uh, hash of a proposal to resolve the strikes with a, you know, raising dues caps and things that didn't address the issue in the in the strike. Um, And and let's be realistic about the responsibility for this long these long strikes. I mean, this industry's been all been idled, rather um, digitally idle, I suppose we might say for you know since before the writers strike because production slowed and stopped in anticipation of that strike so you're talking about 8 months or so of of uh you know of an idled industry of a stricken industry and uh there just was not the ability to you know to carry on uh, a strike for another with the holidays you wouldn't have anything really happening over the holidays for another 2 months into January with negotiation not to mention the other contracts uh, from SAG-AFTRA and the crew unions, I, the IATSE and also Teamsters that are coming up uh, very quickly, mid-year next year. It, it just wasn't going to happen. Okay. And, I, you know, we saw the press conference delayed uh, by an hour and 20 minutes uh, announcing the, the board vote, and they were, in part of that time, were arguing over, you know, are we going to be unanimous or not, and what's the vote.
0: All right. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us in depth about AI and uh, where it stands in this contract. We appreciate it so much. Thank you. Jonathan Handel, attorney and journalist covering the entertainment industry at AirTalk on LAS 89.3. Coming up, LAPD Chief Michael Moore. We have much to talk with him about in his regular visit. We'll be back in 60 seconds. So good to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Coming up next hour, we look at the political group No Labels. They're on the ballot in several states to potentially run a presidential candidate against the two major parties. And with Democratic Senator Joe Manchin announcing he's not running for re-election in West Virginia... There's a lot of talk that Manchin may be the person who runs as the third party candidate under the No Labels banner. We'll talk with one of the co founders of No Labels. That's coming up next hour here on Air Talk. But joining us right now, LAPD Chief Michael Moore. Chief, good morning. Good morning, Larry. Let's start with the investigation into what's been determined to be an arson crime uh, under the uh, Interstate 10 uh, bridges there just south of downtown Los Angeles. We've been told that uh, site of ignition has been determined. What are your investigators looking at?
1: Well, our major crimes investigators uh, continue to work with LA Fire arson investigators investigators in support of the state fire marshal out of Cal Fire. And I don't have an update for you beyond the fact that, you know, the canvas of the area has been completed. A number of individuals that were around that area have been interviewed. Uh, canvas to identify uh, video or camera sources that may pick up activity around there. Those are all matters that have been uh, forwarded in, in the hands of CAL FIRE and their investigators. There's forensic material that still needs to be done, is my understanding. Uh, and at this point, unfortunately, we do not have uh, an identification or... Uh, a, a, a bulletin or anything to announce uh who we believe is responsible for uh, this terrible arson that occurred there.
0: Uh, One of my thoughts was because we understand that there were people living under there and Mayor Bass has appropriately said very important not to blame people that are living on the streets and, and to claim that they're responsible but we have had instances where people have been in abandoned structures lit fires to warm themselves on cold nights and accidentally started a fire which caused significant damage and and but it sounds like that's not what happened here.
1: Well, we, under, we understand people's suspicions uh, relative to persons who are experiencing homelessness that may be in a, about that area, and it's a natural suspicion. It's understandable, but our investigation, in support of, of Cal Fire, is to keep an open mind and to pursue all potential sources of who would be responsible for for that fire and to identify them and bring them. And we ask for the pa- uh, for the patience of the public. We recognize that uh, encampments and, and uh, individuals that are about these areas have had fires, uh, warming fires, cooking fires uh, in the past, and our efforts uh, working with fire and our police personnel is to ensure that uh, we, uh, we prohibit those, that we talk with those individuals, caution them, uh, and tell them have them extinguish those fires because they do pose uh, risks. So again, we understand the public's uh, apprehension and certain individuals' suspicions. And what we just want everyone to do is is give the investigation time. I have confidence that we will find the individual or individuals responsible for this. And I have that confidence because of the professionalism and the level of intensity that CAL FIRE, their fire marshal, as well as with our men and women of our major crimes are bringing to this investigation.
0: Can you share why it's believed that it was arson And not an accidental ignition of the pallets.
1: Well, it's again. I'll leave the uh, technical side of this to uh, the Cal Fire fire marshals and their arson investigators. But what I understand is that we've uh, in the in the investigation that potential sources, uh, in the sense of electrical power or some type of uh, combustible that would uh, spontaneously ignite. Uh, a heat source or something that uh, would be anticipated to be identified, that those type of uh, things have been eliminated and that the source and the uh, the actual location of where the fire be- is begun is believed to have of origin because of the, the level of uh, examination of the flame patterns and, and, and smoke patterns and the heat damage and the path that fire took is that this was in an area that had no other uh, readily available explanation other than an individual purposely starting it now there are again investigations in the sense of the forensic examination of collection of materials and identifying whether there are accelerants and other uh, materials that would be indicative of a person uh, initiating a fire there those are all part of, of CAL FIRE's investigation and again we don't want to get ahead of ourselves here and, uh, and and out you know overpace the what the evidence and the investigation supports so to the public we now, uh, based on this investigation, Cal Fire has determined that this was an arson. It was, is uh, it was, it was, it was uh, the actions of an individual or individuals, and it was not an, uh, a matter of an accident by by some condition of the lot itself.
0: Chief Moore. Uh Pallet lot fires are not an uncommon thing. We've had them throughout Southern California where storage facilities have had pallets catch fire. Uh, Under the freeway in Atlanta, uh, there was a huge fire that did significant damage to the interstate there and, and took a long time to repair. Does LAPD have any role whatsoever in how this Caltrans property was used or reporting it to authorities that all these pallets were stacked up, creating a hazard?
1: No, we don't have a formal role. This is a uh, state property. It is uh, the, under the governance of the state of California, including permitting and inspections and so forth. Our role is really in that area is to respond to, whether it be calls or or uh, dangers that would be identified, is to get the necessary resources there to to, uh, to safeguard the structures, safeguard the lives of people. Uh, but I, I am encouraged uh, by Governor Newsom and uh, Caltrans and every representative I've seen from the state encouraged by our mayor who has led from the front on this on the insistence that what happened there how do we ensure that it does not reoccur uh, across these areas of under these such critical infrastructure as our freeways where we know that we have uh, vast amounts of storage of various materials. And how do we ensure that, again, this is not repeated? And she has directed uh, Chief Crowley and the men and women of the fire department to do a windshield survey, if you will, of driving through these areas and inspecting them and identifying uh, potential problems. And, I again, I believe that uh, the uh, Caltrans will work uh, and continue, as, it, as they promised. The, sec- the Secretary of Transportation promised a reexamination, of the mechanisms that are in place, inspections, controls, and really the the risk versus the benefit of using these spaces for uh, storage, and and uh, and can it be done in a manner that we can assure that. The tragedy of what we saw this last week is not repeated.
0: Yes, it's, 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 at least without having stacks of wooden pallets um, going going up to the bridges. Um, uh, Mayor Bass, by the way, will be joining us Monday on Air Talk, and by that time we expect to know much more about what's going on uh, with the events uh, with the reopening of the freeway. What is LAPD doing to assist with traffic flow in the area, and what's going to be required for the coming weeks of construction?
1: So we have assigned. Uh, Approximately two dozen uh, motor officers today. They're in black and white vehicles because of the pending rainfall to support the dozens of traffic officers uh, tra- from Department of Transportation that are in the streets, attempting to facilitate the heavily congested area with these added motorists. There, uh, the Department of Transportation has done a, has done yeoman's work and taking what is already a congested area and, in, and efforts to mitigate that through engineering changes, through traffic controls that are both mechanical and signage, as well as the presence of trans, uh, tra- uh, traffic officers to help facilitate to avoid gridlock. Our efforts there is to assist them and, and bolster and support them. So
0: if there is a road rage incident or... Or threats, those sorts of things. Your officers would intervene.
1: Oh, absolutely. We're we're there to ensure the safety of those traffic officers, which which unfortunately have experienced uh, some added uh, verbal actions. They haven't. There's not been any assaults or, or any uh, crime to this point. But but our officers are there to ensure their safety. Our officers are also there to help, give a helping hand, to help direct those traffics, because. We know, again, that this area has a heavy amount of commercial traffic. It's a great deal of, of, of heavy uh, trucks, and, and as well as the motoring public and those residents and businesses that are in the area. Now we have uh, far too many people that rather than take the mayors and, and everyone's council, which is stay on the freeway, uh, they are uh, embarking upon these road, these surface street alternatives. And we really want to just reinforce what the mayor and others have said continually is do not be tricked into thinking that the that the transportation by moving onto a surface street to move through that area is more efficient than simply taking what may be uh, lengthwise a longer journey around that area through existing freeways, but will be a shorter in time experience if they'll just uh, stay on those freeways, avoid those, uh, then embar- you know, embarking into these neighborhoods which are already uh, heavily congested in a day-to-day traffic. So rosters are there from well below, before 6 o'clock in the morning until 10, 11 o'clock at night. They'll continue to support this effort. Uh, I'm encouraged by yesterday's report that we're going to get, see these, uh, this freeway uh, restored. It's going to be repaired, uh, that it's weeks, not months, but, uh, but it is weeks still. And so we need Angelenos to continue to work, to plan ahead, uh, to avoid the area, work from home if they're a downtown uh, downtown employee, if they can work from home so that we can lower the congestion in the areas and we can all work together to see our way through this this, uh, this unfortunate accident. Well, let's hope
0: it's the shorter uh, time frame, the three weeks as opposed to five. Great news that it doesn't have to be demolished and rebuilt, can just be uh, shored up and, and uh, the damage that's done repaired and reopened. LAPD Chief Michael Moore is with us. If you have questions about law enforcement within the city of Los Angeles or issues that are writ large in law enforcement across the country, we're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722. You can also email your question for the chief at comments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. I wanted to ask you about this recent event where uh, some day laborers who had been allegedly hired by a man to move heavy plastic bags, which uh, were believed to contain human body parts, Uh, those workers had come in to the local LAPD division to report their concerns, and they were turned away and told to call 911. What is your department doing to investigate how that was dealt with?
1: So upon learning of that uh, complaint of that uh, alleged set of circumstances, we initiated a personnel complaint investigation to identify the facts of the matter. And my commitment to the public is, that we will t- take corrective action, disciplinary action, uh, and, and based on the facts that we that we learn, it is my expectation and it is uh, our experience that people who come to our stations, uh, that are open across the city, are there to uh, be given services to, for us to answer their questions, provide assistance and support. And if they arrive at a location where at a station house that they need police services, um, you know, in a nearby area or residence that we don't turn them away, that we reach out to uh, our resources that we have and arrange to uh, meet those individuals together so we can conduct whatever service or provide whatever service is necessary. In this instance, I'm grateful for the fact that uh, it's unfortunate for the fact that first they went to a different law enforcement agency and CHP and, and first. they were referred to another station. There was an opportunity there to have lost uh, that, that contact. But when they were directed to our station and they uh, approached us, I would have expected that we would have sought for a unit, uh, patrol unit to meet with them there and respond to the location where this suspected uh, activity was occurring and conduct an investigation. So despite the fact that they were told to go outside, which is, is not anywhere near our expected protocols, uh, they did follow that direction, and we did bring a unit in, and that unit did respond out to the, to the location and conduct an investigation. The bags so,
0: were gone by that point.
1: By every appearance, the bags were gone. The officers on scene did conduct an on scene investigation, did locate bags of a similar description in the in the rear yard, and examined the contents of those bags, finding that they did not contain any human remains, and there were no other witnesses there. And the bags, as were described by these two by these uh, these workers we not at the location, so we were limited as to what we could do. But uh, again, I'm uh, well. I'm uh, disappointed that and f- and frustrated that s- that we ha- apparently, by description to this point, failed in the sense of providing the basic level of service that we should. That we directed someone outside to call 911. Uh, I also recognize that officers across this city, at desks all around Los Angeles, daily uh, have people come and and ask for service, and we provide the service as needed and uh, and a level of service that is expected of Angelinos of this department so the vast majority of people are doing it right in this instance it's a clear departure by its allegation that we didn't and we'll we'll fix that
0: and and uh, we should say a resident of that house was then arrested uh, on suspicion of murder after Human remains were found allegedly dumped by that individual in um, a trash container at another location in the valley.
1: Officers were called to another location where in the dumpster the apparent human remains. And those officers conducted their investigation, notified homicide investigators. Uh, This matter was then taken over by Robbery Homicide Division. Their work uh, continued to continues to this day, and uh, the evidence has been presented to the district attorney's office. And while there's much more work to be done, uh, multiple counts of murder have been filed against this uh, individual that we believe is responsible for the disappearance of these three people.
0: You also had an, another uh, a previous case as well where someone had come in, and I don't, I don't have the specifics to report concerns about uh, someone making violent threats and was also told to call 911. So I, I'm just wondering, is, is is this a lack of training since this happened at least twice that has been documented?
1: Well, we have tens of thousands of interactions with people and the vast, vast majority of time. I don't believe that the last, uh, the other instance you referenced, which happened last January, uh, in the central part of the city, where a woman who came uh, asking for help and assistance because her estranged husband had uh, returned and she had a restraining order against him, and she was directed to go out to the location or nearby the location, and uh, and to call 911, and a unit would be dispatched. That should not have occurred. There was a complaint investigation, disciplinary actions being taken. Uh, that officer who directed that action uh, fell short of our standard that is uh, our standards and that what should have happened there was that uh, a unit should have been called from the field to meet with that woman at that station and accompany her to her residence and then begin the investigation. Now, in that instance, she followed direction as required and or as requested, and our officers met with her at the location and then proceeded on their investigation. But I want to be clear that the uh, actions of falling short in that sequence of events we, we initiated a complaint and we've taken action, uh, disciplinary action involving the person and we've corrected that. And we do audit and inspect our, desks, our services of desks uh, across the city, whether it be phone services or in-person services. And I'm confident that while these exceptions have occurred, that it's not the norm
0: uh, and and so is is training going to be changed, or is something uh, something going to be done since this has happened, albeit out of thousands of of interactions and in over a period of months?
1: Well, we have we can t- constantly reinforce our standards and expectations, and we provide uh, you know training as as necessary. But I believe in these both these instances, uh, these are levels of service that are clearly understood and uh, by professionals within this organization and uh, they may feel pressured or they may feel overtasked or they may feel that that there's some other option than what our expectations are but part of this is not is is accountability is, is demonstrating that when we fall short, we're going to hold ourselves accountable. And and officers want and expect that when they go out and do their hard work and they meet the standards of the organization, that there'll be uh, consequences on those that don't because it does undermine the public's faith and confidence in us.
0: I need to break, but I just wanted to ask, in the first incident with the day laborers, uh, they were apparently trying to communicate in Spanish. Yes. Are there translation services available for desk personnel when someone comes in? and doesn't speak English.
1: Yes, in fact, uh, on the site, uh, on that incident, it's my understanding that a Spanish-speaking language uh, uh, officer was uh, contacted and and at the scene and present and was the uh, individual responsible for providing the direction that we're we're talking about here. Okay,
0: very good. We'll continue with LAPD. Chief Michael Moore, by the way, Mayor Bass just uh, said in a brief news conference, Metro ridership is up 10% since the closure of Interstate 10 south of downtown Los Angeles. She's continuing to encourage people to use public transit to telecommute. And just as Chief Moore said, stay on freeways when possible because side streets become parking lots with people trying to get around And as the chief said, that has a huge negative impact on the communities that those trucks and cars are attempting to go through. We'll continue our conversation with the chief when we come back in just 90 seconds. It's Air Talk on LA's 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. LAPD Chief Michael Moore is with us. We're taking your questions on his department as well as law enforcement generally at 866 893 5722. That's 866 893 5722. Rob in the Mid Wilshire District says, in light of one LA's journalist, Josie Wong, uh, and uh, other journalists reaching settlements from lawsuits regarding abuse from law enforcement. Do you have anything to say about the LAPD's relationships with journalists? Let me just clarify that Josie's Settlement, our LAist reporter, was with Los Angeles County because she was thrown to the ground by uh, deputy sheriffs, uh, Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, not LAPD. But there have been negative uh, interactions between journalists and LAPD personnel. Chief?
1: Yes, this is an area that we continue to work on to ensure uh, cooperation, support of the media. We recognize and respect the role of journalism and the media representatives in telling the story and giving uh, the public the right uh, to have access to emerging and and critical instances and involving uh, all sorts of, of activities. We have uh, embarked on ongoing training with our rank-and-file, with our first-line supervisors. We've uh, strengthened our policies and directives. Uh, we are ensuring our full compliance with changes in state law that provide access to members of the media actually into closed areas, which is a change that's happened in the last three years. And we continually reinforce the uh, the. You know our expectations that members of the media are going to have full, unencumbered access, that we're going to provide information as possible. Now, many times there are instances in which the media may want to have uh, particular uh, aspects of information about information that is confidential or uh, could jeopardize a criminal investigation or ongoing investigation. But in the instances of, and I believe the case you're referencing with the Sheriff's Department, involved uh, a journalist having access to an ongoing demonstration or protest. And we've taken, uh, made good strides in, providing ongoing training even today that talks to our rank and file as well as our supervisors and command officers that when a demonstration or protest is occurring, in addition to providing access or designated media area, that media representatives who want to have access behind the lines into a closed area, that they are to be afforded that access and that we we'll are support them and do everything we can to ensure their safety.
0: It seems that one of the, the big sources of conflict or when emotions are running high, again, this wasn't your department, but in the case where where are Josie was um, thrown to the ground the way that she was, you had an investigation of two sheriff's deputies who were shot, and emotions are running high because, you know, colleagues of of sheriff's department uh, have been shot, and other cases where um, there have been uh, LAPD officers who have um, gone too far with journalists, have been like at protests, where emotions are running very high. So what do you do with your Officers to train in those kinds of circumstances where everybody's on edge, not to cross that line with journalists.
1: So I I do believe that we have uh, first of all we hire right, we train good people, they have good values, but they do they can be worn down. And exposure on a on a demonstration on a protest line where the people are being verbally assaulted and and witnessing instances of attacks on other officers along that line. Uh, tempers can be can be uh, can be challenged they can be tempted and what we look to is to rotate individuals through there we ask for linebackers that those are sergeants that are and supervisors that are behind immediately behind that line to monitor the tenor and somebody an officer may be on a line for 6 8 10 12 hours or have been at work for 12 14 hours and they're and they're fatigued and their emotions are raw and we're we're asking first of all to the officer Raise your hand. Let's let's get get you out of there. Let's get you get you some rest, some uh, some ability to rehabilitate to supervisors and to colleagues alongside them. It's if your partner next to you is just having a uh, is having a bad day, then this individual's interaction is not helping it. Be your be help them. Be an active law enforcement bystander. Be an interventionist that comes in and helps de-escalate that situation, and maybe the best instance is for that officer at that point in time to step back and allow another officer, perhaps fresher, uh, has not been gone through the fatigue and the ordeal, to to come in there and, and, again, hold our principles. Now, lastly, it's also incumbent upon the media, and we ask, and part of our relationship is also working with the media for instances in which we've had journalists. I'm not suggesting it in the L.A., Sheriff's Office case, but we have have seen other individuals who represent themselves as media representatives when, in fact, they're actually activists and protesters that are engaged in unlawful actions and then trying by holding up a phone or a camera, say, well, no, I'm a member of the media. And yet they've engaged in acts of violence. They've engaged in, in perpetuating uh, uh, the, the crimes that we're trying to Uh, to keep the peace and trying to avoid So
0: what training do you give to your personnel to make that distinction?
1: So we have ongoing training today where officers are coming in, day-long training in dealing with crowd control, crowd management. And an aspect of that is discussing about relationships with the media, access to the media, and strategies to ensure that there's some harmony, that we're working. What what are some of the tactics we've seen? Uh, media representatives, or others who feign themselves as media representatives, to engage in, and here are the tactics in which to de-escalate that situation and handle it successfully, where the officer is safe, uh, the integrity of that of that op- of that tactical action is secure, but we're also able to facilitate. Uh, and make access available to representatives of the media in a legitimate fashion.
0: I think we can all understand how tensions run high in some of these circumstances. And if officers see their fellow officers coming under physical attack or even if they're getting persistent verbal abuse, we all understand the emotions from that but also understand it's extremely expensive and inhibiting of the press to cross the line as a result of those emotions. How do you help your officers uh, endure things that they have to endure, but that is part of the job for them to endure that?
1: So their endurance in regards to verbal abuse and to withstand uh, and have a resilience in the face of Harsh and unfair and obscene and disgusting criticisms. Uh, yes, that's that is part of the task and and part of our training and, and frankly selection of the right people and the right temperament of our people um, is is incumbent that we they have that resilience and that ability. But we also recognize that people are human, and as such, officers included, and so they can uh, be impacted by such verbal assaults and and seeing and witnessing. Uh, disingenuous uh, uh, actions by uh, individuals. And as such, we work with tactics to to rotate people through there, to get them off of the line. This is much like a firefight where you're dealing with this ongoing persistent issue, and it's exhausting. It's emotionally exhausting. It's physically exhausting. So our effort is to, rec- first of all, recognize that, validate that, and for not the officer to just uh, you know, plow through it because their emotions are going to get the better of them. they are human. So we humanize that. We talk about the responsibilities of each other towards supporting each other and also supervision as a role of taking uh, steps to ensure that they can protect uh, the, the conduct of that officer and our interactions. And this is something we take very seriously. It's something we talk about frequently. And I'll close by saying, each demonstration and protest, and we certainly see in the aftermath of the of the terrorist acts in, in Israel and now the protests and counter-protests and demonstrations, which are daily across the city, is that we talk about this role of access to the media. We talk about uh, volatile and, and contentious situations, and I am proud of the work that our people have done because they have been able to successfully de-escalate situations and uh, navigate this course in a very successful fashion, and I believe you'll see the evidence of that by the absence of of complaints by members of the media in all of those demonstrations that have occurred in the last six weeks.
0: And the challenges for that anger that officers might feel in in enduring what they do in some of these circumstances and that, that not going back against protesters or against media. And that, that, and that's your challenge.
1: That's of correct. And you know we have the services of our police psychologists, of our peer counselors, to validate, recognize, and to give strategies. Because we also know the emotional toll on this is while it may not be directed back, it's not gonna be directed back to the protesters, demonstrators, or perhaps uh, members of the media, is that how is that officer when they're off the line now, how are they coming to terms with this is a profession they've chosen, and are they gonna show up back tomorrow, and are they gonna be refreshed and renewed? And what are the strategies that can effectively uh, you know, debrief them Get them ready, recognize the value, the purpose, the differences that they make, and encourage them to recognize that, uh, I'll use the term wash, rinse, repeat, that how do they get ready for tomorrow and know that we need them and that the public is asking uh, for their help and assistance.
0: We have Daniel in Silver Lake emailed, why hasn't LABD done anything about the street takeovers by illegal motocross bikes on streets like Sunset Boulevard? happens pretty regularly now, Daniel says.
1: So we have done uh, many things. We've made uh, we've impounded vehicles, including um, these off-road vehicles and these cycles. We've made hundreds of arrests we've pursued prosecutions against those individuals, and we've also reached out to the public to make them aware of the serious consequences of such reckless actions when people are engaged in this in this conduct. And also the spectators. Importantly, many of these instances are, we see huge groups of spectators that gather in some celebratory fashion, and what they don't recognize is that Clear and present danger that just our presence there have. We've had murders, we've had shootings, we've had car uh, vehicle collisions that have taken people's lives, that have seriously injured or, or critically injured individuals, lifelong injuries in the aftermath of what is seen as some type of uh, of a of a cultural expression of of of, of, of a rebel attitude. So, well, do
0: you monitor social media to find the locations where these are? Is that not possible?
1: No, it is possible, and we have uh, dedicated. To, personnel that monitor social media. This is a cat and mouse game, though. I will say that are the people who are engaged in this know that that we monitor social media? So they use various techniques to try to thwart our efforts to understand where these uh, these matters are going. They have scouts. They have uh, they have techniques to to understand where law enforcement is at. And we have a region of you know hundreds of, of, of square miles in which they provide ample opportunity where they move from various parts of L.A. to other cities and and, and regions uh, based on what we are in our presence. And I do think we're deterring some of it, but we We need the public health, and I also think we we need more consequences for those engaged in this.
0: I want to quickly slide two quick questions. In Walter and Culver City, is there a backlog of unprocessed rape kits?
1: Absolutely not. Not in the Los Angeles Police Department.
0: Christina Woodland-Hills. Are you working on establishing close relationships between communities and senior lead officers? Prior to the pandemic, the two Woodland Hills divisions of the tobanga LAPD station had monthly community meetings. This was canceled during the pandemic. Uh, I'd like to ask Chief Moore how the Woodland Hills community can meet with our new senior lead officer to start a positive relationship.
1: Those those meetings are ongoing today. If they've uh, if they've uh, members of our community have dropped off of that, uh, Captain Frensing Botang is the captain. At uh, at uh, Topanga area that covers Woodland Hills area, I welcome a call there, an email to that station to make sure that we get reconnected with your senior lead who has more than monthly meetings. They have ongoing meetings with various community groups in each of their respective uh, communities. I'm proud of their work, their their engagement. Even during the COVID uh, crisis, they, they sought ways to stay in communications. But certainly we're back in, in person, and I welcome uh, them being uh, back into the, into, the, into the circuit of understanding what we're doing. We're almost done. But just uh, I want to ask
0: you about perception versus reality, because the perception is that Los Angeles is dealing with a significant crime problem, even as crime is largely down. How much of this do you think is related to visible homelessness? What What do you think are the reasons people perceive this?
1: Well, so violent crime is down in Los Angeles in comparison to these last few years. But but some people's uh, and many people's horizon is, is much longer than that. And when we look at violence in Los Angeles, while we're down more than 60 murders uh, this year versus last, and we have seen reductions in, in, in violence and robberies and so forth – we ha- also see that gun violence is up from say where we were 3 or 4 years ago so it kind of somewhat depends on your perspective it also depends on whether you are a victim of that crime and for instance auto theft which is far more likely to occur than any violent crime in los angeles is up significantly 68% from wow. 2019 and it's being driven largely by the theft of hondas and a kia so if you're a member of if you own one of those cars yeah. and it's been stolen then you feel crime is up and lastly we see anecdotal stories of, uh, of something that shocks our conscious, and we believe it's much more pervasive. fashion grabs, things Absolutely. like that. Absolutely, which we, our people have made hundreds of arrests. They're turning the tide. They've recovered more than a million dollars of merchandise, and we're seeing a direct impact Thank on you, that. Thank you, Chief Moore. Thank you.
0: Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Coming up a little bit later this hour, best selling writer Mark Kurlansky. He's done so many books on different uh, types of food. Milk, salt, cod, his new one, the core of an onion, peeling the rarest common food, featuring more than 100 historical recipes. We'll be talking with him. Also a new study looking at what Gen Z wants to see in their filmed entertainment. and. In the poll, it showed that Gen Z viewers didn't want to see as so much sex or romantic relationships. They wanted to see more friendships, more platonic relationships depicted on screen. We'll talk about the reasons for that and hear from listeners, their perspective. But we turn our attention now to the political group No Labels, founded back in 2010 to offer a centrist alternative to parties that uh, were perceived by many to be becoming more... More extreme, the organization was involved with the Problem Solvers Caucus in Congress, and has uh, put out in recent months uh, a full list of where it stands on a variety of issues, from abortion to gun rights uh, to uh, social security policy. Joining us from No Labels is co-founder of the organization and national spokesperson Holly Page. Holly, thank you for joining us. Thank
4: you for having me.
0: Now you can. Came out of the Democratic leadership uh, council, uh, uh, a moderate, more centrist Democratic group aligned uh, with Bill Clinton's um, political philosophy. Uh, how does how does the DLC, which is you know not what it used to be in its influence? At all, sort of relating to the perspective of no labels?
4: So, I think the Democratic Leadership Council, when I was there, really was attempting to take the core values of the Democratic Party but find modern ways to advance them. And I think the need to do that has uh, intensified. We're essentially trying to govern and manage 20th century society and economy with 20th century structures. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done that requires coming together with people from different perspectives, different points of view, and finding our best collective way forward. Uh,
0: you have uh, positions on issues from no labels that uh, there's plenty here for staunch Democrats or Republicans not to like, but perhaps for centrist voters to find appealing. Um, you have a Social Security that it needs to be fixed now so that beneficiaries don't uh, suffer any cuts. What about means tests? Or um, you know, changing what what the contributions would be, raising that ceiling.
4: So uh, what you're referring to is our common sense policy handbook, and it really is less about what individuals at no labels think and opposing our ideas. It really is the statement of where American voters can get to seventy percent or more consensus on an issue. That uh, one of our large points here is that the American people ourselves are not as divided as we are being told we are. We can respect that people have different points of view, come come from different uh, orientations, but can find a way forward on even the most contentious issues.
0: So is this driven by polling results that show what would reach that 70% of American buy-in?
4: Polling, long, 10 years worth of research and conversations with the American voters. Yes.
0: All right. Uh, and and for example, under voting, uh, it says every legal voter should have the ability to vote. Every legal vote should be counted and every counted vote should be verified. So voter ID is something that no labels thinks is supported by the majority of Americans, but that it should be made easier to vote by mail.
4: Well, again, you know, we are de- we're dealing with 21st century voting with old structures. So let's have a way to look at that that could lead us all forward instead of everybody going into their own corners. But I want to say a few things, if I may. One is we don't call ourselves centrist. We don't talk about moderate politics. Um, I've spent a long time trying to define what that means, and I've given up. What this is about is the politics of problem solving. Anybody is welcome into this movement, into no labels, be they liberal, conservative, anywhere in between, if they are genuinely there to come up with the best common solution. And we have to do this because the incentives in Washington reward the wrong thing. You get rewarded for adhering to party, putting loyalty to your party above all else. You get rewarded for extremism you get rewarded for outrageousness. If you show up and commit yourself to working with people from different points of view across the aisle, uh, you get primaried, you get money against you. The incentives reward the wrong things. That is what we're challenging.
0: We're talking with Holly Page, co-founder of the uh, nonpartisan, nonprofit political group No Labels, national spokesperson for the organization. With Joe Manchin's announcement that the West Virginia senator is not going to run for re-election, it sort of further puts him to the fore as a potential No Labels candidate. Um, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona has also been talked about as someone, because those are two Democrats, of course, who... Who have held out uh, before signing on to some of the president's uh, policies and and funding measures. So, um, first of all, why is No Labels considering having a presidential candidate represent the group and, and go against the two major parties?
4: Well, as smart as some of us are, we're, we're not smart enough to uh, create the this environment. We are simply giving voice to a majority of American voters who are clearly saying any chance they get, they do not want a repeat of 2020. They want a conversation that is moving the country forward, and they they want a third choice. No labels is simply getting access to the ballot in each state so that if the common sense majority continues to want a third choice, we could offer our Ballot line to, to that.
0: How many states is no labeled secured uh, ballot spot?
4: We're in 12 so far, and we're in play uh, in about 27. Each state has their own window when you have to submit whatever their requirements are. They don't make it easy. Uh, they they there's a lot of fine print in how you have to go about it. It's a very daunting task, which is why so few entities or people have been able to do it in the past, but it frankly gives the common sense majority voters that we represent leverage in the conversation. They have to pay attention to us if we can challenge them at the presidential level.
0: With just a year left till the election, is there time or is it possible to be in close to on close to 50 states' ballots?
4: Oh, yeah. We will succeed. There are several states where the candidate has to actually be named, so if there is a campaign and candidates, they will have to you know, go the last mile, but the requirements come down. So we will be on all 50 states for sure.
0: Are you concerned that uh, the party of the candidate could have an effect on which of the major party candidates it's siphoning votes for? So, say, exam- for example, if Joe Manchin were to run as the no-labels candidate, he's a Democrat— Um, It would seem there's the potential to draw more voters from Joe Biden than from former President Trump if he ends up being the GOP nominee. And leading Democrats are very concerned in a scenario like that it could essentially put Trump back in the White House.
4: Well, first of all, anybody who says that they know exactly what's going to happen in 2024 is not paying close enough attention. Um, we know that the voters want a different choice, and the market is forming to offer that. We would like it to be a choice that has that comes out of responsible governance for the nation, and so um, we we also know, frankly, that there are 24 million plus. Trump voters from 2020 who will not vote for him again, but will not vote for Joe Biden. So that is a pool of voters that we believe changes the dynamics. It's why we publicly said uh, our best guess at this point is that there would be a Republican at the top of the ticket. You know, we, we don't think we would could win California. But in a three-way race where 33, 34, 35% would win all the electoral votes in 48 states in the nation, Florida and Texas are in play. So we we only go forward if we can see a clear path to victory. We have no intention. This isn't about selling books or cable TV shows. This is about helping the nation transcend a turbulent moment and giving us the leadership we deserve.
0: Neither President Biden nor former President Trump are fiscal conservatives. Is it likely that no labels would look, in a way to try and pick up disaffected Republicans who are fiscal conservatives, look to that being one of the aspects of your candidate?
4: I don't think anybody who takes the future of the nation seriously can, can do so and not address our deficit, our spending, the fact that we have to get it aligned with um, the nation's debt crisis.
0: So so that's yes. It would yes, likely yes. be a fiscal conservative. Yeah. I mean,
4: I don't even know what that means anymore, but somebody who pays attention to the fact that we're spending so much more than, you know, than mm-hmm. we're bringing in. I mean, to me, the deficit is a values issue. Uh, certainly it's an economic one, but Americans understand you can't go on forever and ever spending more money than you bring in every month, and yet— Congress seems to not have gotten that memo.
0: We're talking with Holly Page, co-founder and national spokesperson for No Labels Organization, considering putting a presidential candidate on the ballot who would challenge those in the uh, two major parties, as well as other candidates. Um, uh, Jill Stein running again for the Green Party, Cornell West, who is running as uh, an independent, undoubtedly the Libertarian Party, will go through its process and have someone. So there will be other uh, third-party candidates who are going to be out there. I want to ask you about the funding because uh, No Labels has not been forthcoming about its funders. Why not?
4: We are challenging a sitting American president and a former one, and it takes a tremendous amount of courage to do that, basically. We, as uh, leaders and staff people of No Labels, have been intimidated, have been threatened, uh, you know, trucks driven around Uh, Our founder's neighborhood with uh, AI created photos of her with Donald Trump. It's a lot. And to subject people who are contributing to have the common sense majority's voice heard in national politics, subject them to the same thing, uh, we don't think is responsible on our end. If there is a campaign and a candidate, of course, they will have have to to follow all of the same rules as everybody else.
0: It's been reported that Harlan Crow, the billionaire and friend of Clarence Thomas, was a major financial contributor. And that has raised among skeptics of no labels the concern that the organization really intends to benefit former President Trump and that this is a vehicle to do that. Uh, your response to that?
4: First of all, I don't judge you by the people who live on your street or sit in your church pew or whatever. I judge you based on your actions, and I would ask people to do the same with us. But I will say this, our allies in the problem solvers and in the Senate were the Republicans who voted to impeach and convict. Why would we want to return President Trump to office when we know, because he's told us, that he intends to have retribution to anybody who crosses him politically? Anybody who says that is not paying close enough attention to what we are saying and doing, or they're saying that to raise online money, because it raises cash for on social media.
0: For those in your organization who are uh, see former president Trump as as a menace essentially to democracy Um, uh, what what has kept them from saying, well, I may not be a full throated President Biden supporter, may not even be a Democrat, but the risk is too high of the former president returning office. What's kept them from saying we need to support the current president because the risk of Trump returning is too great?
4: I would invite anybody who says that to come out around the country it is by no means certain that President Biden or Vice President Harris could beat Donald Trump. If you believe that President Trump's return to the White House is an existential threat to our Republic, why wouldn't you want to back a backup plan? Why would you wanna put that whole future in the hands of what we have all witnessed to be an honorable and decent man in President Biden, but fragile and frankly, in the opinion of millions of American voters, too old.
0: If, if for you yourself, because you come out of the Democratic Party and the Democratic Leadership Council and working on behalf of of President Clinton, what um, what soured you on the party that you used to work for?
4: It's not so much about being soured on the party. It's that my allegiance, my commitment, my passion is for the nation for what is the true promise of this nation, which is a quality of opportunity. And to the extent that either party wants to be a vehicle for, to strengthen our nation, to help give every American that opportunity, uh, then, you know, I'm I'm for that. To expect anyone to have an allegiance of the party over the country is so backwards to me. I just don't really understand it. And I don't understand either allies and friends who I've known for years and years and years in the Democratic Party who are attacking us when all we are really trying to do is bring in the voice of the common sense majority that is being shut out because both sides cater to their extremes. We're trying to bring this voice in to help move the country forward.
0: How would no labels be able to competitively fundraise against What's available, you know, the massive uh, campaign chest for Democratic and Republican candidates?
4: Well, first of all, no labels wouldn't fundraise. It would be a campaign and a candidacy that is separate. But I remind you of uh, uh, 2020, uh, the race for the Democratic nomination. Then Senator Kamala Harris started that with the most campaign cash, the biggest rally, the most energy. She didn't even make it to Iowa. Who wins Iowa? Pete Buttigieg, who I've known for a long time. I still don't know how to spell his last name. The point being, money and energy and politics follow ideas. They follow somebody who is speaking in fresh terms, who's not just regurgitating the same old rhetoric. I mean, you know, as I travel around the country, Americans are heartsick for this nation. They are so worried and scared about our polarization and our division, and they see no path forward to bring us back together. If, if there is a campaign and a candidacy that offers a vision of how that can happen, I believe the money, the energy, the volunteers, the voters will be there.
0: Holly Page, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Co-founder of the group No Labels and national spokesperson for No Labels. Of course, we'll be closely watching to see uh, if they choose a candidate to run across all 50 states for the presidency. It's AirTalk on La it's 89.3. We'll be back in just one minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. Well, the new study out of UCLA's Center for Scholars and Storytellers is dubbed Teens and Screens, and it looks at 1,500 members of Gen Z ages 10 to 24 and made some interesting findings about what people in that age group are looking for in their entertainment. Joining us is the co-author of that study, assistant professor of psychology at UCLA, and the founding director of the Center for Scholars and Storytellers, Yalda Uhls. Thank you so much, Professor Uhls, for joining us.
5: Thank you so much for having me, Larry.
0: So uh, share with us what young people said in your survey about depictions of sex and romantic relationships in their filmed entertainment.
5: So young people talked to us or, or answered our survey saying that they... Um, were interested in seeing a variety of relationships they felt that sex at times is shoehorned into a story and not necessarily reflective of everyone's lives and everyone's kinds of relationships they also felt that they were very heteronormative and they felt that um you know they just wanted to see some platonic relationships and Actually, 39% also said they wanted to see asexual characters.
0: Yes, and, and what do you make of, of that finding? What um, How does that relate to changes that we see among this generation that would correspond to what they want to see on screen?
5: I mean, honestly, there's a lot of theories out there. And I, I don't know if I can really comment on why. Why? Um, We had our first and second author, um, who are Gen Z authors. Um, They they wrote a beautiful essay um, saying that perhaps it's because of COVID and loneliness, and media represents the third space, which is a term from sociology that talks about how the first space is home, the second space is work, and the third space used to be like churches, community centers, and now, you know, we don't really have that. They don't have that, so media is that third space, and they want to have, like, real relationships and the way they want it to reflect the real world a little bit more. Um, Other theories, one that um, I shared actually on NPR um is that perhaps they have because this generation has so much access to um sexual content and porn that they don't want to see it in the entertainment media that they relax with that they're hanging out with friends or sometimes watching with their parents
0: interesting so so um They put this in a different category than any pornography that they consume. I also wonder if, because we know from surveys, that Gen Z is having less sex than previous generations, if that fits into what you were saying about wanting to see their lives depicted, which would be less sexual activity.
5: Absolutely. That is an absolutely valid theory. And probably it's a bit of everything.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, I'd love to hear from listeners who are Gen Z or Gen Z adjacent. What you think mm-hmm. about this finding? We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Professor Ooles, I'm curious, and I know this isn't part of, of your survey, but if this might also apply to uh, older consumers of entertainment who might also appreciate seeing less sexualized but rich platonic relationships as a bigger part of the mix?
5: Well, actually, the theory I have, which I did not mention, is that we kind of overcorrected you know, when, when Helen Gurley Brown and, and, you know, we had the sexual revolution, all of a sudden, everybody was supposed to have sex all the time. We were supposed to put it in your faces. And, and so, you know, people felt like, you know, that's their right and women should be able to express their sexuality. But the reality is, you know, even older generations, younger generations, it's just one piece of our life and one piece of our relationships. You know, there we have very nuanced kinds of relationships. And I think we'd all be um, be better served if we saw more variety.
0: It's interesting also the heteronormative um, comment that was made, because I, I tend to think, at least in many of the things that I watch, there are many different um uh, same-sex relationships, that we see people who are married of, of the same sex. We, uh, there are trans people that are in um, uh, shows that we didn't see in the past. But I wonder if among younger viewers, they feel like that still isn't keeping up with what they see percentage-wise in their world.
5: But I don't think it's just percentage. It's also the way these stories and these relationships play out. And in the heteronormative relationships, there's a heterosexual script. And I think what they're saying is we're sick of that. We're sick of the boy just pursuing the girl, the girl Got saying, it. no. you know, these kinds of ways that um, these relationships are are played out in entertainment media, just don't ring true to them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense because as, as we have seen, tremendous gender shifts in culture. It does seem that entertainment really has not kept up to that, and there's a lot of stereotypical uh, gender performance that we see in in films. But I'd love to hear from listeners what you think. We're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and your first name. You know, one of the things, and this is a longstanding critique of American entertainment, is that a lot of times uh, the sex or the romantic relationship feels tacked on. It's somewhat superfluous and is used as a device to try and prop up the the television series or or the film. And I wonder, does this survey at all get to that issue as to how it's used artistically?
5: Absolutely. I mean, we definitely, we had um, young people talk about the stereotypes they, they disliked. And that was one of the stereotypes that it was shoot in. Um, and then if you look at the comments, I mean this survey really went worldwide. We were in The Onion, we were on Jimmy Kimmel, <laughs> we were on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell You and NPR yeah. and um all over the world too, 40 countries, and we found that um. You can see in the comments, there's this Reddit thread that had, and I'm assuming there's more Gen Zers on Reddit too, um, that really talked about those, those um, how it doesn't, it's just thought it needs to be part of the plot. And storytellers really should be thinking about that and not chewing it into the plot.
0: One of the challenges, of course, is that the creative people behind filmed entertainment are typically not in this age range. You know by the time they've gone through school and and learned the business at all, they're they're generally older, but in some cases writing for a younger audience. And um, so maybe this argues for more research being done into understanding Gen Z viewers, even if if Gen Z isn't where the writers yet are coming from.
5: Well that is exactly why the Center for Scholars and Storytellers exists because we believe the lived experience of adolescence should be part of the storytelling and we believe that storytellers and Particularly in legacy storytelling, often the way that people choose to portray an adolescent experience is based on their own adolescent experience or based on their children that are adolescents. And neither of those are really reflective of today's modern adolescence. So, what we do at the center in addition to this um, Teens and Screens annual report is we actually talk to youth and we help them connect with storytellers and talk about what they care about and what they wanna see.
0: All right. Uh, We're talking with Professor Yalda Uhles of UCLA. She's Assistant Professor of Psychology and the founding director of UCLA Center for Scholars and Storytellers, co-author of the study that we're talking about that was recently released looking at uh, 10 to 24-year-old Americans in Gen Z and what they said they wanted to see in media that they weren't getting, and that includes uh, a de-emphasis on romantic relationships, and a greater emphasis on platonic relationships the other thing professor les is just as there's plenty of real world complexity <clears throat> excuse me in how in how romantic relationships um uh, take place Platonic relationships provide tremendous variety for the ways that those friendships play out, what, what the friendships are based on. It's a very rich area, and um, I wonder if part of this is sort of storytelling laziness, that they fall back on the romantic tropes instead of really examining the complexities and variety of, of platonic relationships.
5: I don't want to say storytellers are lazy because they work really, really hard. But you're right, sometimes storytellers don't do the research they need to do to really um, capture the lived experience of a marginalized community or of a young person. Um, And and we also argue for that as well. And platonic relationships and peer relationships are critical um, during adolescence. They're like the number one job of adolescence is how to connect with peers and how to live the world out in the world with peers and not their family. So it's natural. They'd want to see that reflected more.
0: All right. Professor, anything else uh, that you think is important for us to consider in your findings before we let you go?
5: Oh, no, um, I think um, I really appreciate the fact that you had us. I will say one other thing. They yeah. said the most authentic media was social media. And I think part of the reason is that um, that is created by adolescents sometimes. And so I think the storytellers that tr- t- tell these stories, the traditional stories, movies, television, Netflix, streaming, they really need to listen and think about how they portray adolescents, or they will they will lose Gen Z. And we really hope that the Center for Scholars and Storytellers can support adolescents in getting their voices out there to storytellers.
0: Professor so good to have you with us today. Thanks very much.
5: Thank you so much, Larry. Thank you,
0: Professor Yalda Uels of UCLA joining us. Just a programming reminder, this afternoon at around 4.15 here on All Things Considered, President Biden will be holding a news conference following his meetings with Chinese President Xi Jinping. Uh, President Xi is not scheduled to join the press conference, but we are expecting that uh, President Biden will be taking a variety of questions from journalists. We'll have live anchored NPR Special coverage during all things considered, uh, sometime in the four o'clock hour, right here on ATC with Nick Roman. You're listening to Air Talk on LA's eighty-nine point three. I'll be back with best-selling writer Mark Kerlansky, author of books including Cod, Salt, and Milk. His new one, The Core of an Onion. We'll find out about all the different varieties of onions and their existence in cultural representations going back centuries. We'll be back in 90 seconds. It's air talk on L.A.'s 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. Coming up on NPR's Here and Now, the latest on the war between Israel and Hamas. We'll have that coverage from NPR. And then coming up, 1 o'clock, the first hour of NPR's All Things Considered, right after fresh air, Austin Cross. We'll be here uh, and uh, be talking about what the biggest local news is. But we turn our attention right now to a terrific writer who's written books on so many different food-related topics, including cod, salt, milk, the big oyster, and uh, salmon. His latest, The Core of an Onion, Peeling the Rarest Common Food, featuring more than 100 historical recipes. Mark Kurlansky, so good to have you back with us on Air Talk. Yeah, nice to be here. So let's uh, start first of all with with uh, you know peeling the layers of an onion, so to speak. The the uh, vegetable is of itself kind of uh, a, a complex, multi layered. Where did you do your research to 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 see what the history of the onion has been?
6: Well. Uh i mean i collect uh
0: historic food books
6: and everybody's written about the onion i mean you you'd be hard pressed to find the books that doesn't have <laughs> include the onion or uh, um, a collection of recipes um uh it's it's just uh, it, it's it's everywhere and it's in religions and it's in literature and um We really have onions on our mind much more than we realize.
0: And is much of that because of the the metaphorical use of the onion and its layers?
6: Um, It's partly that, but it's,
0: you know, the onion
6: uh, grows in just about any climate. It grows in the Arctic, it grows in the tropics, it grows in deserts, and woodlands, everywhere. So um, everybody has them. And they uh, are remarkable in a lot of different ways. They're gastronomically remarkable because they change character with heat. So you have this very stringent, strong taste in a raw onion. But when you cook them, it turns out that they're full of dextrose and they're very sweet. Uh, So there's lots of different things you can do with them. And um, you know, as happens with something that's ubiquitous, it, it gets different meanings in different cultures.
0: Yeah, you know, I, rem- I remember growing up, Mark. That you know, you typically when you go to a supermarket, you'd see the you know brown onion, and or you'd see a purple onion. Now we have so many different varieties, and are, are these ones that were available? elsewhere? Or or have these been, um, you know, especially uh, bred because of of, uh, how well they've done in the market?
6: Well, there always uh, was a wide variety of onions. Um, But now there's even more variety of them because in the 20th century, scientists learned how to breed them. Um, Before that, It was kind of up to nature because they're a self-pollinating plant. Normally, you you breed a a species by um, introducing male characteristics to a a female plant. Um, But onions, one of the many odd characteristics is that uh, they're both male and female. So they pollinate themselves. So it's difficult to... uh, to breed them. And in the 20th century, uh, actually in University of California, they found an onion that was all female so they could breed it. And from that has come uh, a huge amount of breeding of different varieties of onions.
0: And, and then as much of this trial and error, putting out different types to see how um, food buyers would, you know, what they would go for.
6: Uh, yeah. I mean, um you know, certain things were, uh, uh, targeted, but, uh, um, yeah, you kind of have to wait and see. It's like, uh, trying to develop a new breed of dog (laughs) Mm -hmm. to see how it turns out.
0: Well, I'm thinking about the rise of sweet onions, the Vidalia, the Maui sweet. It seems like, you know, this is something that we've seen in more recent decades. And I assume that's because it was was, was always
6: there. It was always there. What happens is if you have a place where the soil does not have much sulfur and the air doesn't have much sulfur, uh, the onion will be much sweeter. In a sulfuric environment, the onion is stronger. So <clears throat> there, there were certain places um, that uh, were ripe for for growing sweet onions. Uh, Bermuda was one, and uh, uh, but Vidalia, Vidalia um, in, in Georgia is not a uh, is it, it's not an out outgrowth of Breeding, although the onions are bred, but originally it was discovered that the area was ideal for growing sweet onions. They also grow them in Texas and in the Imperial Valley, where they grow everything, and in Walla Walla, Washington, and in Hawaii and Maui. Um, but it's really a it's a question of environment, and then they have developed. Um, A couple of onions that are particularly suited for this, the grano and the granox, and you plant these onions in these places and you get sweet onions.
0: We're talking with Mark Kurlansky, who's the best-selling author of numerous books on food, his latest, The Core of an Onion. If you have questions about onions you'd like to ask, Mark, we're at 866-893-5722. His pen and ink drawings are also included in the book, as are many recipes for the types of onions uh, that uh, he's talking about, 866-893-5722, or you can email us at comments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Of course, one of uh, the great uses of onions is in soups. We have the famous French onion soup, which can be found around the world, but uh, I suppose originated in Paris. Y- you have a chapter devoted to it, in fact. You know, Share with us the story of the uh, Paris onion soup.
6: Yeah, well... Um... It seems to have not been originally Paris, but it became fa- it was France. It was in France and so it became famous in Paris. Um, particularly in the Leal market. And it became a thing in Paris culture to, you know, if you have a night out, you end the night late uh having a bowl of onion soup in the Leal market. And the, the the myth was that uh onion soup sobers you up. Um so you could really tie one on and then go to the market and have an onion soup and come home fine. I'm not sure that works, but uh, it was <laughs> believed.
0: <laughs> it's a lot of cheese to sober one up, isn't it? <laughs> right,
6: right. Well, Alain Senderoff, uh, who is a uh, famous uh, Paris chef, once told me that if you really want to sober up, don't put cheese in the, in the soup.
0: <laughs> but no one would eat it then without the cheese. That's the big draw. Right, <laughs> right. All right. We're at 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at com. You were talking about how onions react at temperature. You have a chapter devoted to caramelized and glazed onions. And, um, uh, you know, just share a little bit about uh, sort of the science involved with that.
6: Right. Well, caramelized onions and glazed onions are are both sort of sweet dishes, but they're, they're <clears throat> completely different in their concept. Caramelized onions don't have any sugar or honey or anything added to it. It's just the onions themselves that if you cook very slowly, uh, it just brings out the dextrose more and more. Um, and uh, that is a... Uh, um, a dish or an, a, an ingredient in dishes that uh, is valued in much of the world uh, just adds this sweet savoriness to uh, any dish. Uh, good on mashed potatoes, good <laughs> <not> on <laughs> anything. Um, and then glazed onions are onions that uh, have something added to them. My, my favorite glazed onion recipe in this book is the Sicilian one. Where they're glazed with orange blossom honey and masala wine, uh, great dish.
0: It looks great. Uh, the orange blossom honey, known as zagara, uh, and it it involves uh, white onions. Uh, pork lard, zagara honey, a glass of dry marsala wine, and salt. And and then the directions how to make it sounds, sounds like something. You also have, and it's very brief, but the recipe um, from uh, the first cook, American cookbook by an African-American, 1911, by Rufus Estes, the book Good Things to Eat, in which he gives a recipe for glazed onions.
6: Yes, uh, he gives a number of onion recipes, um, and uh, uh, his recipes are, are good. I mean, they're, they're, uh, uh, he wasn't a famous chef or anything, but uh, uh, he knew how to cook and uh, um, uh, had probably a very kind of American cooking.
0: We'll continue our conversation with Mark Kolansky, author of The Core of an Onion, Peeling the Rarest Common Food. Also features, features more than a hundred historical recipes. We mentioned a couple of them. Uh, we have Bob and Irvine emailed, so difficult to predict what an onion will taste like before buying at a grocery store. I only buy one at a time. I find even the sweet onions, the ones called that, are never consistent in flavor. And Bob wants to know, how do I find good ones? We'll see if Mark has a tip for that when we come back on Air Talk in just one minute. In the four o'clock hour this afternoon, we'll have live anchored NBR coverage of a news conference from President Biden, that increasingly rare event, a presidential news conference. You know, when I started um, as, as a news director many, many years ago, we'd have them all the time, but now they're they're so rare in the most recent administrations. We'll have one for you, though, this afternoon, uh, around 4.15 is what the White House tells us. But it'll be somewhere in that 4 o'clock hour, we would guess, uh, as part of all things considered here on LAist 89.3. Tomorrow on Air Talk we're going to take a look at new census data, which shows a quite dramatic rise in the number of of Americans with Native American ancestry. So the question is, what's behind that? Is it how the Census Bureau is classifying people? Is it because of um, the ancestry DNA tests that people have found that they have uh, Native American ancestry and so now are, are mentioning that in the census? Uh, we're going to get to that tomorrow on Air Talk. so please join us for that. Uh, as I mentioned, we had uh, a listener, Bob, in Irvine, wondering, how do you pick an onion and make sure it has consistent flavor? Mark Kurlansky, author of The Core of an Onion, you have any advice for Bob? Well, you
6: know, there's, there's a limited number of things you can do. Um, uh, an onion, uh, a good onion actually isn't going to have a strong smell unless you cut into it. Uh, so you can't really tell by smell. Uh, it should... The skin should be in good shape. It shouldn't be sprouting. Uh, It should be a consistent hardness. Don't get an onion if it has a soft spot. Um, But uh, aside from these basic things about how to tell an onion when it's in good shape and when it's not, uh, it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, People in onion growing areas, Uh, Have farmers they like whose onions they know, Uh, and then you know what you're getting. You know if you know the farmer and you know the product. But for most of us, just buying them in the market, it it really is kind of hit and miss.
0: It's the story of strawberries as well. The same thing, strawberries that can look great, have no taste whatsoever. And, and others, you, you may be a little questionable looking, then end up being sweet as can be when it comes to strawberries. Um, Omri in Beverly Hills says, what's the difference between a shallot and an onion? Are they from the same family?
6: Uh, they're from the same family, but they're they're totally different species. And a shallot is a a different kind of bulb. It's a split bulb, and um, uh, really, uh, really a very, uh, very different thing. I mean, you can't—they're not interchangeable. There are things that shallots are good for, and things that onions are good for.
0: All right, Omri. And Jessica Northridge, said, uh, Is what is the most effective way for cutting onions without uh, your eyes responding? <laughs>
6: yeah, well, there's, there's a lot of literature on that. And, uh, some of it is nonsense and some of it has some truth to it. <clears throat> um, one thing that I find works that is rarely suggested for some reason is it helps to wear glasses. And if you want to take that further, you can actually buy something called onion goggles. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, yeah there are onion goggles, you know, and uh, uh, some chefs wear them, but, you know, chefs these days are really into being cool, and it's hard to look cool when you're wearing onion goggles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, water, to cut onions by running water actually uh, has some science behind it, because <clears throat> what happens when you cut into an onion, is it actually, It it's, it's bits in your eyes. It's, it's sulfuric gas that um, seeks out water. And when it mixes with water, it becomes um, uh, uh, sulfur dioxide. And that's why it hurts. And um, uh, so if you have running water it will go a lot of it will go there rather than into your eyes not all of it but uh uh that helps a lot of things like um uh having a piece of bread in your mouth or having a wooden spoon in your mouth those things don't work at all okay
0: do people get used to it i always wondered you know with people working on the line in the kitchen who are you know dicing up onions for you know Long periods of time. Do, do they get inured to that, do you know, or do they just, you know, get used to crying?
6: Uh, having having done that, I do know that they they don't you never get used to it. You right. just kind of accept it. <laughs>
0: All right. We're talking with Mark Kurlansky, author of The Core of an Onion, Peeling the Rarest Common Food. It also features more than 100 historical recipes. This is Mark's follow-up to his bestsellers, Cod, Salt, and Milk. All of these books, looking at the history of the uses of these food, what sorts of imagery uh, there are historically about it as well, and then recipes of some of the different ways of using those foods. And as he mentions here, when it comes to the onion, there is even a uh, use in an alcoholic beverage because uh, there's a martini that that uses a pickled onion, right? Yeah,
6: a Gibson, which uh, seems to be of California origin. Actually, martini seems to be of California origin anyway. Right. Um, there's a lot of debate as to how this thing got going. I mean, I find it to be a completely weird idea.
0: (laughs) All right. Mark, thanks so much. I appreciate you being with us. Thanks so much for your questions for Mark Kurlansky. Stay tuned. NBR's Here and Now comes up next. They'll have the latest on the war between Israel and Hamas. Then coming up at 1 o'clock after fresh air, Austin Cross will be here for the latest from All Things Considered, which in its 4 o'clock hour brings you live anchored coverage of President Biden's news conference. He'll be talking about about a number of events, including U.S.-China relations. Have a great rest of your day.
5: The LA Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local, fact-based journalism.